a lot of people don't realize is that the Flamingo Hotel was not started by Bugsy Siegel as portrayed in the movie Bugsy. It was actually started by a man named Billy Wilkerson, who owned the Hollywood Reporter and a number of other places in Hollywood, including several restaurants. He started the Flamingo and named it the Flamingo, but it had nothing to do with Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend, Virginia Hill, which was the premise in the movie that the Flamingo got its name because Bugsy Siegel named it after Virginia Hill. It never happened that way. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Good to be back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. We have my repeat guest, Jeffrey Sussman. Jeffrey, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Gary. Well, Jeffrey, we've done boxing in the mob. <laughs> we've done some other older mob things. And you and I talked a year or so ago about this new book about the kind of the origins and Las Vegas, how it developed. You got a copy of that book there? Hold that up. Yeah, I have a copy of the book. It's called Sin City Gangsters, The Rise and Decline of the Mob in Las Vegas. And it was just published. Cool. So guys, I'm going to have links to the Amazon site where you can buy that book. I'd highly recommend you buy the book. And, and looking forward, you'll see that your intrepid host, Gary Jenkins, gets a little credit. For, <laughs> Absolutely. For the and well-deserved credit. <laughs> so Jeffrey and I, he interviewed me and he recorded it. And what I knew about Las Vegas, of course, my knowledge of Las Vegas, as you all know, is really from Kansas City. And it's about the skimming and what happened in the Kansas City area of the skimming investigation in the 1970s. But I was happy to help Jeffrey and I wish y'all luck in the world. And so thank you. Uh, how did you happen to get started in this? You're an Easterner. <laughs> right. And, and well, you boxing in the mob has been huh. one of your things. Boxing is your real thing. So how did right. you get into this? Well, I met three different people at different points and it sparked my interest. In the late 1970s, I met a man named Big Julie Weintraub, who looked like an ex-heavyweight fighter. You know, he had a broken nose and he was about six foot five 250 pounds and he was the creator or the inventor of what was called the las vegas junket where he would take high rollers to the dunes hotel and each one of them would lose about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. and julie was a compulsive craps player and he would tell me about this and how it funded his gambling so that was my first initiation into learning about las vegas the second was I was on vacation also in the late 1970s at a resort in Southern California called La Costa. And I was invited to a New Year's Eve party there at someone's home. And at the New Year's Eve party, I met this elderly man and we were standing in the living room. Each of us had a drink in hand. And he said to me, you know, my back is killing me. I've got to sit down. And so we both sat down on the couch and we're chatting. And I said, so what do you do? And he said, well, I used to be a partner in owning the Desert Inn with Mo Dalitz and a guy named Robert Tucker and somebody else whose name I can't recall. And I said, oh, that must have been fascinating. He said, yeah. And then we sold it to Howard Hughes. And I said, but how did that come about? And he said, well, Hughes and a whole entourage of Mormons came out and they took over the top two floors of the Desert Inn. And because they were Mormons, they didn't drink and they didn't gamble. And we were losing a ton of money on the place. And we usually reserve the top two floors for high rollers who come out over the Christmas and New Year's holidays. And so we went to Howard Hughes and we told him that he either had to move or he had to buy the place. <laughs> and he said to us, well, how much do you want for it? And we gave him a price that was four or five times the value, thinking that he would move out. And instead he said, OK, I'll buy it. 
And that's how Howard Hughes bought the Desert Inn. So that was my second encounter. And then the third time I was on a, a book promotion tour in Chicago and someone I knew who was in the trucking business invited me to his private club for dinner. And I got there a little early and he was sitting at the bar talking to a man. And I have no idea at the time who he was. And my friend introduced me. He said, Tony, this is Jeff Sussman. Jeff, this is Tony. We shook hands. And my friend said, why don't you go in the dining room? Tell the maitre d' you're with me. He'll give you a table and I'll be in in a few minutes. So I went in the dining room and I waited a few minutes. And my friend came in and I said, who was that? He said, his name is Tony Ocardo. And he's head of the outfit. And I was having trouble with people pilfering from my trucks. And he said he would take care of it and no more pilfering would occur. And then my friend took out this button that must have been this big. And it had a picture of Tony Ocardo on it. And it said on the top, happy birthday. And then on the bottom, it said, big tuna, happy birthday, big tuna. <laughs> and he said to me, wear this button any place in Chicago and no one will bother you. He said, you could shoplift on Michigan Avenue and no one will arrest you. <laughs> and then after learning also about you and Lefty Rosenthal and Anthony Spilatro, they were controlled by the Chicago outfit. Yeah. And they also took orders from Tony Accardo as well as Sam Giancana and others. And so that was the third event that sparked my interest. You realize everybody out there saying, oh, you have the button? Where do I find one of those buttons? You have that button? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that button was made available to the public. It was oh, just okay. people who attended this dinner party that my friend attended. <laughs> well, too bad. It'd been a hell of a keepsake there. It'd been a hell of a keepsake. Absolutely. <laughs> So I guess Las Vegas, Sin City, a little bit I know about those early days is there was, they built a boulder dam. So there's a lot of men that need to be entertained out there right uh, Right after the war, I believe, which had been going for a little bit. I think they had legalized gambling, about the only place that had it. But those really early nascent days, what did you learn about that? Well, it was fascinating because one man who I found absolutely fascinating was a man named Mo Dalitz, who started out in Cleveland as a bootlegger during Prohibition. And when Prohibition ended, he opened gambling casinos in several states in the Midwest and did so well with them that he moved to Las Vegas. And he had been a friend ever since he was a young man of Jimmy Hoffa. And Jimmy Hoffa had risen to be head of the Teamsters. And he arranged for Mo Dalitz to get a loan from the Central States Pension Fund to build the Desert Inn. And Mo Dalitz went on to build several other casinos as well, in, in partnership with, with other gangsters, primarily East Coast gangsters, the most prominent being uh, Meyer Lansky, who also owned points in the desert. And he was a fascinating character because eventually he became so well-established in Las Vegas, he made so much money from his casino businesses that he built hospitals, he built churches, he built synagogues, he built shopping malls, he built schools, he built hospitals. He became known as Mr. Las Vegas. They even wanted him to run for the Senate at one time, and he turned them down. He went in one generation from being a gangster to being one of the most respected citizens of Las Vegas, referred to in the media as Mr. Las Vegas. It was an extraordinary life that he lived. And for me, he was one of the most fascinating of the characters that I got to write about. I have a wiretap 
where Nick Savella and Joe Agosto, who was Nick Savella's mole in the Tropicana, and they're talking about doing some more business. What they're really talking about is trying to put together a package to buy the Tropicana when Alan right. Glick was going to sell it. And they were talking about people to do business with. And Nick said something about, you know, how about Mo Daylitz? And Joe said, oh, Mo, he's a good guy. He said, we can do business with Mo Daylitz. So <laughs> <laughs> He was such an influential, tough guy. He was having lunch one day. I forgot who it was with, but there was a young gangster who was trying to extort money from Mo Daylitz, who was at this table with them. And Mo Daylitz had notified, I think it was Sheriff Lamb, prior to this dinner, that he wanted this guy ejected. And Sheriff Lamb just came right into the restaurant, grabbed this guy by the collar, and dragged him off to jail because Mo Daylitz wanted it. He had so much power. And he used it very quietly, but his power was just extraordinary. So let's talk a little bit about Lefty Rosenthal. I know we and I talked about him, and I'm sure you learned even more. He was such an influential character out there in Las Vegas. Now, what do you know about the origins of Lefty in Las Vegas? Well, he was connected to the Chicago outfit, along with Tony Spilatro. And when they wanted someone out there in the 70s to run the casinos for them, also to control the skim. And he was an expert, not only in, at increasing the profits, but also at manipulating the skim to maximize the amount of money that they could skim out of the casinos. He was absolutely brilliant, but totally a moral person, completely without a conscience. And the mob loved him. However, what was also interesting, and the mob didn't learn this until much later, is he was also an FBI informant. And that's how one of the ways that he kind of skipped past all the obstacles that someone like Tony Spilatro faced. And ultimately, that's why they tried to blow him up. At the end, they put a bomb in his car because they finally had more than just suspicions that he was an FBI informant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they had probably more talk on these Kansas City wiretaps about Lefty Rosenthal than any single subject between Nick and Joe Agosto and Tuffy and Joe Agosto. And Lefty was in the center of all this. He was in the center of the skim from the Stardust. He was a mob associate connected to Chicago. And he lived through all this. And he never went to grand jury. He was never indicted. He was not an unindicted co-conspirator. He just like disappeared. <laughs> now tell me that's and, not and, an informant. <laughs> then, no, it was extraordinary. And then after it was all over, he moved to Florida and uh, operated a very quiet uh, bookie operation there, and no one ever bothered him. <laughs> now, Tony Spilatro, I mean, on the surface, he was set out to kind of oversee Chicago's interest, and they had a big interest in the gambling industry. But Tony, he was in the black book pretty quick. So now, right. how did he operate out there? Well, he had a gang of professional thieves. and. He wasn't happy just taking orders from the outfit and being a sort of an overseer to protect Lefty Rosenthal and, and to make sure everything ran quietly at the casinos. He would have been bored doing that. Back in Chicago, he had killed people. He was a professional thief. He especially was interested in stealing jewelry and fencing it. And so he went a little berserk in, in Las Vegas and brought so much attention on himself that the outfit got very upset with him because they felt that he was going to ruin the skim for them because he opened up the door to numerous investigations and the outfit as a result would suffer 
And the one thing they didn't want was to suffer because of this guy. And, you know, he wasn't the only one that the outfit got ticked off at. They also got ticked off at Frank Sinatra. At one point, Sam Giancana put out a contract on the life of Frank Sinatra Mm. because he ruined the Cal Neva Lodge for Sam Giancana. These people were really intense about being able to maintain the flow of money that was coming into them. And anyone who jeopardized that had to be eliminated, whether it was Frank Sinatra or Tony Spilatro. Yeah. Alan Dorfman once said on a tape on a phone that he said, you know, you got to be in Vegas. If you're going to maneuver money, you got to be in Vegas. So, (laughs) (laughs) which kind of goes back to him also. Yeah. Yeah. They killed him too. Yeah. Teamster connection and how the Teamsters and Teamster money really, I shouldn't say, wouldn't say Bill Vegas, but it was really instrumental in that. What did you learn about Teamsters money? Well, well, certainly the central state's pension fund operated by the Teamsters contributed to the building of about 10 casinos in Las Vegas. And even after Mo Dalitz was getting out of the casino business, he built La Costa with a couple of partners in Southern California. And that was funded by the Teamster Central States Pension Fund. And even when things began to change in the 1980s and so forth, Jay Sarno, who built the first big billion-dollar resort hotel in Las Vegas, even he took money from the Central States Pension Fund to build Circus Circus. Right. There's Carl Thomas. There's a little blurb from Carl Thomas on the wire about how he was skimming from Circus Circus and he was a Teamsters. He was a Dorfman guy. He was a Dorfman plan in there that assisted with the skimming wherever they were. They were all over the place. So now here's a question I get once in a while. And I don't know if you got this answered or not. These loans that the Teamsters made, they were secured by property. How good loans were they for the pension fund? Did they default on a lot of them or were they get paid back or what was the deal? The ones that they made to Mo Dalitz, those were all paid back. He was almost meticulous in making sure that it was paid back. But, you know, they were taking in so many hundreds of millions of dollars, it wasn't difficult for them to pay it back. If someone was doing a bust out or something where they wouldn't have money, then the loan wouldn't be paid back. But by and large, the Mo Dalit's crowd, they paid back all their loans. I would imagine all the rest of them did too. That's the best I could ever learn about it was that I, didn't, I thought you might have learned some more that most of those loans were paid back. So Sheriff Ralph Lamb, now there's a character. Did you learn much about him? Sheriff Ralph Lamb was a law and order guy, but he was also the guy who would do favors for the mob. Like he had a split personality. On the one hand, he adhered to strict regulations and law and order. And on the other hand, he would look the other way or do favors for a guy like Mo Dalitz or anyone else who was a powerhouse in Las Vegas. He knew how to maintain his position, and he did a good job of maintaining it. Yeah, I found an old FBI report where he wrote a letter of recommendation to the Florida State Racing Commission because Lefty for Lefty Rosenthal because he was trying to get a license to have a racehorse or something down in Florida. So, you know, he kind of a character <laughs> there that, you know, bragged how he took mobsters off the plane and beat them up and put them back on the plane and sent them back to Chicago or New York. <laughs> but on the other hand, he was doing favors for them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, it's a, such an interesting place. Well, we got into the skim and lefty, and he was frantically trying to manipulate the attorney general, who then became the governor, and, and kind of you know, had a little bit of a, a crappy two-bit little 
blackmail scheme on him. And it's like Las Vegas and Nevada, they were really almost libertarian out there. They did not like the interference from the federal government. They wanted to handle those things themselves. But yet on a state level, it's really hard to deal with a nationally based organized crime thing. So it's an interesting place out there. But you talk about the federal government. And I spoke to Mo Dalitz's daughter and other people who knew a lot of these guys during their prime. I was told that the person that they hated the most was Robert Kennedy, mm-hmm. that he was really a thorn in their side. And there were no tears shed when he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. They all felt relieved. <laughs> so I guess as Howard Hughes, he started buying up casinos. And then is that the same time when the mob, the FBI started exposing the skim, getting more names in the black book and the Teamsters money dried up? Was that a little transition right there? It's a little bit of a transition. And certainly when Howard Hughes began buying up casinos, he bought a lot of mob-owned casinos. So a lot of those mobsters, they just took their money and went someplace else. Yeah. So a lot of those casinos then became more legitimate. But he was a funny character. One of the things that I found out when he was in his suite at the top of the Desert Inn, he was looking out the window and he saw this blinking sign from the Silver Slipper. And it really annoyed him. He thought it was vulgar. So he had a former FBI guy who worked for him named Robert Mayhew. Mm -hmm. And he said, Mayhew, I want you to go out and buy the Silver Slipper and get rid of that sign. (laughs) And he did. (laughs) He thought nothing of it. I think he bought 12 hotels. I mean, it was just extraordinary. He made deals where he, he would sell the hotel, but he would own the land and he would lease it back to them. And then later on, they could buy the land from him. Very kind of complicated real estate transactions. Now, that Robert Mayhew, I believe he was the guy that helped the CIA connect with Sam Giancana during that time, if I remember right. Yeah, that's true. And then Hughes fired Mayhew because he thought Mayhew was stealing from him. And Mayhew sued Howard Hughes and Hughes countersued. And I think that Mayhew walked off with about $2 million, though he had really wanted a lot more than that. And that was the end of that relationship. Yeah. Mayhew, he was a Mormon too. He's the one that brought in all those Mormon ex-FBI agents. Exactly. Right. Right. That's true. The Mormons, they weren't going to steal from them. They didn't drink and they didn't smoke. And And they were costing the mob a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really. Well, it's a fascinating place and it's changed so much. I guess that after Howard Hughes and the mob went out, then the corporations figured out that we could really make some money out here. and, And it's just changed so much these kind of big visionary type of guys like Jay Sarno and Kirk Kikorian and yeah. Steve Wynn and Sheldon Adelson. I mean, they built these multi-billion dollar hotels and casinos. And when you think of all the money they spent to build these places, and yet they were still making a profit on them. They were so expensive to build, and yet the money that came in was even greater than the cost of building and operating them. It's Steve just amazing. Wynn. I found a, a transcript from an old wiretap and Steve Wynn was overheard. And it just, this was just an aside. He said, Donald Trump's the only one that can lose money in the casino business. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it, it takes a special knack to lose money in the casino business. Really? Meyer Lansky said of the casino business, he said, it's great. He said, all you do is you open a store that doesn't sell any merchandise and people give you their money. <laughs> That's a good quote there. <laughs> that is a good one. 
All right. Well, Jeffrey, this is this has been great. And guys, we don't want to give too many stories away. You're going to want to take a deep dive into Las Vegas and check that link out down in the show notes and get that book. I really highly recommend it. I've gotten several of Jeffrey's books and I'm going to get one of these. I haven't got one yet, but you're going to get me one, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Without question. Sin City Gangsters, The Rise and Decline of the Mob in Las Vegas. Right. Yeah, oh, I forgot to mention that Nick Pileggi has said about this book that he found it fascinating. He said, it's all here. And I learned a lot from it. And he's the guy who wrote Casino. Right. So I felt very good that he said he learned a lot from my book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would feel good too. You got a quote from him on that. Great. Yeah. That's cool. Thanks a lot, Jeffrey. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Gary. Well, if you guys, you know I ride motorcycles, so look out for motorcycles when you're out there. And if you or one of your friends or relatives or somebody you care about been in the service and have a problem with PTSD, go to the VA website and get that hotline number because there's help available out there. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye, Jeffrey. Bye-bye. Take care. <laughs>